the Desert Ranch Podcast is brought to you from Indian Springs Working Ranch, located in the beautiful Pelenceo Wilderness Mountains of Eastern Arizona. Indian Springs Working Ranch provides guests with an authentic working ranch experience. Guests will herd cattle on horseback, repair fences, and live as real ranch hands do. Check it out at www.indianspringsworkingranch.com. Also brought to you by Our Lazy J Wildlife Ranch, an education and conservation breeding ranch in Eager, Arizona. Get up close and personal with more than 56 species from around the world. Encounter sloth and lemur, cheetah and clouded leopard, as well as many types of hooved, feathered, and scaled wildlife on the web at rlazyjranch.com. Welcome to the Desert Ranch Podcast with Vanessa Rohr. Vanessa and her guests will give you some insight into the lives of those who are keeping us from being naked, hungry, and thirsty. Now, here is your host, Vanessa Rohr. We're here today with the first inaugural Desert Ranch Podcast, and our guest today is Carolee Cox, and Carolee's going to tell you a little bit about what she does with a little Colorado meat processing project. Thanks, Vanessa. Um, I'm excited to do this this morning. I am uh, the president of the Foundation for Little Colorado Revitalization, and we are working on a regional food system project um, using a USDA-inspected meat processing plant um, with ranchers in the area, and we are expected to start uh, processing in May. We're excited about that, and I'm excited to talk about it. Awesome. I can't think of a better person or a better project to have on our inaugural podcast here. And as we were talking before we started recording a little bit about how we got to the Desert Ranch podcast, um, I was approached for a podcast pertaining to zoos, because that's also something that I do. My Husband and I have a zoo in Virginia. We have a zoo here in Apache County and the town of Eager. And I got to thinking, you know, my my passion and my background um, has always been in agriculture. And that's how I got into the zoo world was through agriculture. And there's definitely tons of transferable knowledge and raising and caring for those animals. Uh, but definitely over the last couple of years, it's really struck me how important agriculture is, how important our food chain is. And uh, frankly, Carolee, it really pointed out to me more than ever how many problems there are with our, our food supply chain and um, you know the disconnect between producers and consumers. <clears throat> I absolutely agree. Um, that's why I'm excited to talk to, about this today. We are in a fairly remote area here in Apache County, and we definitely classify as a food desert, um, and we are um, definitely food insecure. Those challenges um, are compounded by the fact that we're 250 miles from any metro area. So that really does um, compromise what food system we have and what in the supply chain that we have. We also see almost 100% of our beef and livestock transported outside of the county and outside of the state to be fed, to be processed, and we don't see any of that come back into our own neighborhoods. 
So that's a huge thing for us, right, is to be able to process our own uh, livestock that is raised here in Apache County and to be able to supply that to those who um, are food insecure and be able to support our local ranchers and um, our local livestock producers. I think you probably know that they're always on the losing end. And I, I don't mean that as a like a you know really negative doomsday kind of thing. It's just a fact. So producers make the least amount of money out of that entire food chain. And if we want them to keep producing, we got to find a way to expand their markets. And a local market really is the most sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I can speak a little bit to those uh, challenges uh, firsthand. And we're not, uh, my husband and I, my husband's a third generation Arizona rancher, uh, transplant out of Mojave County. And, um, you know, during COVID, we, we saw so many of our friends that were producers or friends in Iowa that had hogs that were um, facing the same access to market challenges. And so we, you know, we ended up bringing some of the um pigs here, feeding them out and processing them, and then our own small herd of cattle. And during COVID, we had a high, high demand locally for um, for those products, and then we started our little meat shop. But it was an impossible challenge to try to um, time the production and growth of those animals with the openings at the local meat processing plant. And, uh, and we also found that, uh, you know, even our, our local clients weren't aware of the regulations involved. You know, for example, we couldn't sell them a package of meat if it was processed at a custom exempt facility. We had to have one that was, had a certain level of inspection. And so, and that's really where the pinch point was for us, um, getting those dates with a, a properly inspected plant. And, and quite frankly, we've, you know, decided at this point where we shut down our meat shop because we just couldn't balance demand with the animal weight with the um, the processing opening. So your plant is going to benefit people in the area because it is an ex- inspected plant. So tell us a little bit about the inspections that are going to come with this operation. So... Being a fifth-generation rancher here in Apache County um, and being familiar with those very challenges, I started trying to think about how we could how we could get around that. And really, the only there's not an around to it. Um, you have to work with the system that's in place. And so, USDA Food Safety and Inspection Service is really your highest standard in terms of meat quality and meat safety. So we went looking for not only a uh, processing facility that would meet those standards, but also looking for the right personnel and the right relationships who had the experience to be able to manage a USDA-inspected processing facility. That, um, that inspection happens um, at the point of harvest, and then it also happens inside your processing facility. So those standards um, are, are guided by humane handling standards. They're guided by food safety, cleanliness, um, the health of the animal, all of those kinds of things. We're, we're excited to be able to work with um, inspectors and those who are going to watch that process so that our end product really is the healthiest and safest product. 
I'm sure you're familiar with all of the recalls. You watch recalls happen all over the all over the nation, all over the world for that matter, because we ship uh, meat everywhere. If we have the ability to monitor that as well, then we have the ability to make sure that the product that we're going to put out is going to be safe. Ideally, those ranchers who are also going to market their own product, right? So they're going to bring um, beef to us and we're going to process them for them. And they're going to turn around and they're going to sell that beef on across state lines, um, online, however they want to do that, in a small meat shop, whatever works for them. And they'll know that what they're passing on to their customers, not only their own uh, livestock, but it's going to be processed um, in the safest manner possible. That's awesome. Such a great opportunity here locally. And can you, this is probably almost a philosophical question. This seems like a no brainer, right? Like it, it, we've been talking about eat local for a long time as a nation. And um, why aren't all communities doing this? I, I don't have a quick answer to why aren't all. I really don't. Um, I could, I could uh, surmise. The biggest challenge uh, is bureaucracy. I hate to blame it on something like that because then it doesn't feel like it's solvable. And it is solvable. It, it absolutely is. Um, what we learned in, in this process, and it's taken us about two and a half years to find the funding, to find the system that we wanted to use, to, to go through all of that. What we found is it's not a money-making enterprise. So processing livestock is not. If it were, the big four meat packers would be, they'd be raising livestock and, and, and doing it themselves. They know that where the money is is in the weight gain on their cattle. And so they do that in great big processing plants where they can just mass produce and um, they don't have to age their beef. They don't have to do some of those things that really lend to a quality product. And that becomes just this huge conglomerate that is almost impossible to compete with. So we chose a model that we didn't have to compete. We're going to carve out a little niche right here is essentially what we're going to do. And we're going to recognize that it's not just a commercial enterprise. It's a social enterprise as well. So it really is about getting that local beef back out to the local consumer. Um, we're not going to compete with JBS or Cargill or Tyson Foods or whoever that is. Um, but we are going to make sure that the people in our area um, have access to that quality meat and that it's affordable to them as well. We also, we went looking um, for funding. I will tell you, private banks scared to death of this project. Funding for rural areas is really a challenge. They told us, until you're in business for two years, we're not going to look at you. Well, if we could be in business for two years, we wouldn't need you. So it was really, uh, it was just crazy. Um, we did find a huge ally in USDA rural development here on the state level in Arizona. And we're thrilled with that. That's been a great relationship and that's going to help us get started. But this, I feel uh, as a part of this community, so lucky to have you as a resource in the community uh, because you, this is kind of what you've done, right? In terms of sort of community development and action and that sort of thing. I know you wear a lot of hats in this community and, and have in other communities too. Um, 
just, I I don't want to get too far off the top of the meat processing facility, but tell us a little bit about, um, you know, your background and and what you've done in other communities for a career for all these years. Thanks. Um, So I have a small consulting business in which I do strategic planning, project development, capacity building for small nonprofits and rural communities. So I've seen a lot of the same challenges in those rural communities that we face right here in Apache County. In in identifying those as common problems, that's also helped me to understand where to look for some solutions. It's also given me some great ideas. And so the, um, the mobile harvest unit that we'll have, that we'll travel around, I didn't get that concept off the top of my head. I saw that in action in one of the communities that I was working in. Um, I learned to understand what a CSA was. I learned to understand the the marketing and and the challenges of individual producers much better because of the work I was doing in other communities and watching where they were looking for those solutions. I also learned, even in small rural communities, people still don't know where their food comes from. They still don't know that. Um, They may have a rancher right down the road, or they may have a neighbor uh, that's involved in some kind of uh, farm production, and it's still not clicking. So it's a huge educational piece as well, and I've spent some time doing that. I That background in nonprofit work has really helped me um, because our meat processing facility is owned by a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Again, we had to look at it as both a commercial and a social enterprise, and that's where we're at right now. You mentioned that uh, where we are in Apache County, or probably greater Apache County for that matter, is a food desert. Do you find that when you're out uh, traveling the country and in your other um, endeavors, building uh, capacity, are most of those rural communities food deserts as well? They are. Mm-hmm. What is quite surprising to see is um, the loss of local grocery stores in smaller rural towns across America. I, I don't know if people understand that, but grocery stores are disappearing. Um, that they're being replaced by a model um, that we believe gives us food cheaper, i.e. dollar stores and that sort of thing. Um, what they don't give us is fresh, healthy produce, fresh, healthy meat. Um, what we get is something that's been packaged and processed over and over and over again. Um, and, and some of that is a marketing kind of thing. It's a convenience thing. And so we're eating less healthy all the time. And those, especially independent grocery stores, aren't there to serve um, that population. The distance between those grocery stores grows ever more. For us, particularly here in the desert southwest um, and Arizona, I'm sure New Mexico as well, that's um, compounded by the fact that we have large portions of our states that are reservation. And so what you find on um, American Indian reservations is a complete lack of um, food access. You're really lucky to find a grocery store Mm-hmm. Every couple hundred miles. Mm-hmm. That's something that folks on the East Coast would not even be able to fathom um, the distance that it might take to go to the grocery store, stock up, and come home, get, you know, with, right. with a whole back seat full of groceries because you're not going to get there again for two weeks. 
Right. I, I know a lot of uh, when I talk to people, potential employees that want to come work at our wildlife park here in Eager, I would always tell them, well, we're 45 minutes from a Starbucks. And we're fortunate enough to have two grocery stores in Eager and Springerville. Well, one on each side of the Round Valley. Um, but if I were to tell them, you know, that there's places out there that have to go a couple hundred miles, I, I think they would definitely run for the hills. So, uh, and, and in addition to the, the mileage, there's, well, we're in a pretty temperate area in the mountains here. It's not super hot, but if, if you have to travel, you know, from Wilcox to, um, you know, someplace out in the desert or places where it gets much warmer, then, you know, you're talking about, you know, forget having actual ice cream by the time you get home. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so there's those uh, things that you have to prepare for when you're going, quote, grocery shopping. Uh, there's little opportunity in rural areas to um, go to the market on a daily basis and pick out what you're going to have for dinner and bring it home. And you're going to, it's going to be relatively fresh. Um, you may in the summertime luck out and hit a farmer's market. Um, but that's, that's really about the equivalent of that. So that food accessibility and that food insecurity, um, just because there's a, a, um, a, a convenience store on the corner doesn't mean that that's really food. It might fill your stomach and you might eat a bag of Doritos and think life is good. Um, but that's really not what we're talking about here. We're, and we really are talking about quality nutrition and quality food. The other challenge is um, we have this situation with trucks and supply chain and that sort of thing. And even, even before COVID and some of these other issues happened, it was still at least 200 miles for a, a truck from a metro area to get to us. If there was a winter storm, if, there, it was, if it was monsoon season, if there was something else going on, the truck just didn't come. Mm -hmm. um, and when the truck doesn't come, that means those shelves are empty. So we're grateful to have uh, residents who really do take that serious. You know, they keep a little, little bit of a stockpile, you know, a few extra mm -hmm. cans of stuff here and there. Mm -hmm. But that, that leaves us even more food insecure because that supply chain is so fragile. Right, right. Thank, thank goodness for truckers. Oh, <laughs> yes, yes. We love them. We do. Right. So who else do you see um, regionally or even nationally that's really looking at this problem? And, and, you know, we hear little discussions here and there, but um, you mentioned the bureaucracy behind that. And, and you know, we... We in our house tend to get mad and start cussing the meat packers, but you know, outside of of you know being frustrated and and stomping the floor, who else is you know out there trying to solve these problems? So, I think on the grassroots level is where you find most people who are looking for solutions. The challenge with um, bureaucracies, government, that sort of thing is they're really not close enough to the problem to understand it and therefore offer what's really a viable solution. And so there's some really creative and wonderful entrepreneurs and, and you know, out-of-the-box thinkers in the rural areas. The other challenge to that is rural people are really concrete thinkers. 
We are, right? Um, we want to touch it, feel it, see it, know that it's there. We want to smell it, even if it's bad, right? <laughs> um, we want to know that that is happening. And so we have a little bit of a hard time working with the abstract. And, and that seems to be where we hit a little bit of a challenge. I really believe that those who are working on this issue uh, are champions of uh, local food, they're champions of healthy foods. They are champions of um, keeping up, creating smaller systems, right? This vertical integration is, it, it's just about to kill us. Mm-hmm. And we need to recognize that, okay, we thought that was oh so smart and we could just put that all in one line right up the chain and it was going to work. And there's just too many vulnerabilities in that. So we're looking for those things outside of that. I also believe that um, there are opportunities, there are um, uh, CDFIs, community development finance institutions that are out there trying to get into rural areas. I also believe USDA really wants to be in rural areas. If we as uh, local rural people don't speak up and start telling them what it is that is our challenge, they're not going to learn how to address our need. And so sometimes we're not we're we're vocal within our own little homes or communities, but we're not really vocal when it comes to assisting those who want to help us understand what our challenges are. And and I feel like too generally rural people we tend to be fairly humble and not want to brag about ourselves or put ourselves out there and um, or or even ask for help um, in many of those cases. You are right. We don't do it well. We really don't. Um, we we have a, a independent spirit. Each and every one of us do. I don't know what it is about the West that does that to you, but maybe it's just all the blue sky, right? Um, but we get really independent, and sometimes to our detriment, learning um, to ask for help is important. I don't think it's because we don't understand that whole barn raising ethic. We absolutely do. My neighbor needs some help. I'm so happy to go help my neighbor. In fact, I'd rather help my neighbor than do my own work. Yes, right? Exactly. Um, That's why I haven't dusted in the last exactly. month. <laughs> exactly. That's the way that works. Um, but I do also think that um, we're going to have to look a little bit outside um, our, own, our own places. And quite frankly, we're going to have to admit that there are things out there that make um, changes so, so possible. So we're not taking advantage of the technology that's out there just today, this podcast, you know, just the technology, this mm-hmm. little bit that we're using, that's huge, mm-hmm. right? Um, so we need to learn to do that a little more. We also need to advocate a little bit better. Even farmers and ranchers in rural areas need better broadband. If we're going to be a part of the world, we're going to have to have those things. So we don't advocate for some of the necessary infrastructure as well. We still need good roads and highways to get our product out, even if it's 30 miles away. Um, You and I know that we can drive on some pretty sketchy roads and that that just doesn't lend itself. It to, keeps the tire shop in oh, business. Yes, it does. It just yeah. got a new set yesterday. I, oh, there you go. See, it does. It absolutely does. So we need to focus a little bit on that infrastructure issue as well. And that's just getting out and, and being a, a better squeaky wheel. Um, we haven't learned to do that because, like you said, we're not, um, we're not good about bragging about ourselves. 
Um, so when we have successes, we don't talk about those. Um, we also don't want to be um, the one that looks like we can't solve our own problems. For some reason, mm-hmm. um, we still have a, a rural mentality of, well, we don't air our dirty laundry. So right. our failures aren't up for grabs, right? right? <laughs> I'm going to promise you I got over that. I have <laughs> failed enough. I have. I have failed enough. Like I'm, I, I could, If I fail again, I'll just have to do something else, right? Exactly. Yeah, don't ask me how I know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah, you mentioned that vertical in- integration issue, and I feel like that's really um, whether whether be- you know the um, bureaucratic reasoning for it is um, such or not. It- it's allowed people to not have to pay more at the grocery store, right? So the, the- all the vertical integration has. Um, kept the parity pricing well not allowed for parity pricing and a lot of people don't realize that that you know the beef it, it costs you and your family the same amount of money today to produce that beef as it or sorry I'm saying this all backwards <laughs> what it, <laughs> what it costs to produce the the beef has increased or the carrots or the lettuce whatever the product is corn it's the it, the costs have increased but what you're getting paid for it hasn't increased since the 1970s and uh you know parity says that as your expenses increase then your profits should increase and that just hasn't uh you know been what our agriculture field has seen and and I feel like the vertical integration has insulated the consumer from all that and and sometimes I think if they were paying respective you know parity pricing then everyone would be a little bit more upset and maybe a little bit more ready to um, plow fields and raise cattle and or at least make sure those people that are doing that are taken care of that's a really really good point I would have never dreamt uh, growing up, right, in the 70s and watching my dad struggle, um, particularly ever fall when it was, you know, time to sell your calves and, and that sort of thing. I watched that struggle with him and how, first of all, was he going to pay his creditors, which had been patient with him all year long, right? They're waiting for that big check um, from the sale of those calves and then see what's left to see what he could manage the next year, Right. That became smaller all the time, and I watched that struggle. Um, I would have never dreamt that I would get to be that same age and have that identical struggle, and really that I'm not getting any more for my cattle right now than my dad got in the 70s. That's heartbreaking. It's heart-wrenching. We're not seeing support for, especially the smaller American uh, farmer. We're not seeing that for the family farm. We're not having an appreciation for what farmers and ranchers do in terms of stewardship, what it costs them to be good stewards. It's not just what it costs them to raise what, they, what they're going, going to feed you with, but it's also that good stewardship issue, right? <clears throat> so it's the water conservation issues. Mm-hmm. It is the, um, it's trying to keep that transportation and that sort of thing down to a minimum. Mm-hmm. It's all of those things that ranchers and farmers are well aware of mm-hmm. that adds to their costs again, and yet no more money comes in the door. It does not. So right. you you see that discouragement as well yeah, among ranchers and farmers, right? I was reading an interesting article this morning. It was actually published over in New Mexico, I think it was June of 21, but it was it had to do with the wolves. 
and um, and how and they were the it was some biologists that were with uh, Fish and Wildlife Services that were being critical of ranchers, and they would they were saying, well, ranchers need to one synchronize their cattle. Uh, okay, argue for or against that, and then also build structures to protect them. And I just had to laugh because I thought they have no idea what we're grazing. You know, we have six sections, and to the idea that I'm going to get all my cattle in the barn at night to protect them from wolves is not very realistic at all. <laughs> no, no, it is not. Um, that is one of the things I learned in, in my travels um, to other rural communities and that I'm envious of. But I don't know if people outside the Southwest understand that we just don't grow grass the same way you do in the Midwest or the East. It just doesn't grow like that, right? right. So, so we are this arid climate. And what a rancher manages to do with that little bit of rainfall and that little bit of grass that grows is amazing, right? right? Um, our cattle are so resilient. But when you're covering, you said six sections, and you realize just how many acres are in a section, right? And you start thinking, oh my gosh, it takes me really half a day to travel that, at least, just horseback. Or if I if I have a quad or something like that, right, I'm well aware of the destruction I'm going to make to my own grass. So I'm, I'm opting for other things that are not near as right. convenient and, and time-saving and those kinds of things. So um, how I would ever get all of my cows back into a structure, I don't, it, it just <laughs> would be impossible. Um, and there are plenty of ranchers in this area. You may only see your cows twice a year, and that's just a reality in order for them to get enough grass, right, right. And, and to feed enough. So you may see them in the spring, and you may see them in the fall. Right. And um, uh, one other thing I would mention is the fences, right? So you can try like crazy, but when you're also trying to work amongst the wildlife, um, you can have some really good fences, and you can have a small herd of elk come through mm-hmm. and just annihilate any fence you put up, and the next thing you know, your cows are in the next county. Right. Um, it, it just is the challenges that we deal with. But it is also part of what ranchers love. Right. We recognize that it's a lifestyle that works for us and fits for us. But yes, we'd like to be adequately compensated for all of that and... and um, not to have to have second incomes, right, all the time. So growing up, you know, the the saying was behind every successful rancher, you know, was a wife that worked in town, right? That was that was the whole thing. Well, now it's behind every successful rancher. The husband and the wife work in town and, and do their best, you know, um, after hours and on the weekends. And that's not sustainable. And we know that it's not, right? We end up burning the candle at both ends for sure. And and I don't know, I know a lot of ranchers that might cuss the elk when they take their fence down, but it's not like we ever develop any kind of, you know, vengeance towards them. We just recognize that that's part of life. And now we're going to have to go ride the neighbor's property and figure out where our cows ran off to. Absolutely. And, uh, and at the same time, you know, going back to some of the, the conservation that you mentioned, you know, how many... Uh, uh, bighorn sheep and elk and and even predators w- are coming to our waters. You know, we we make sure our cattle have water. Uh, they're utilizing that water as well. So uh, you know the the benefit it, I think that uh, ranchers have to the land 
and, and we are properly managing our grazing lands. Um, you know, I think those far outweigh anything any detractors could say about what we're doing. Absolutely. Um, for us in this immediate area, what cattle have been able to do when they're released back on the forest after the large forest fires is huge. That's huge what they managed to do for the soil and the um, vegetation that they helped to bring back. <clears throat> One of the communities I was working in in Arizona was a mining community, and they had um, uh, tailings piles, right, from, from copper mining. And they had put cattle up on those tailings, um, and they were rebuilding the soil. So when the tourists would come through their town, they would ask them, are those really cows up there? And um, the community learned to respond, oh, no, no, those are floss bees. <laughs> and, of course, everybody would go, well, what is a floss bee? And they would say, well, that's a four-legged organic soil builder. <laughs> I love it. Okay? I love so it. So we have to remember that that's what cattle do. Yes. And that is so very important, right, to the health um, and the ecosystem mm -hmm. on the forest. We forget that. We forget it does the same thing for any of our range or grazing lands. Mm -hmm. um, so they're an important part of the ecosystem. We think without having that education, you think that they're not, but they absolutely are. Right. And think about the magic that comes of that. Not only are they re rebuilding the, the soil, but they're, they're reducing the fire danger, which... Uh, if people that don't live in the West don't have any idea what that means to wake up and smell smoke or see smoke. Um, but there's plenty of us that live in the West that do appreciate that. And they're turning this material, this excess material, basically, into this magical thing that we're going to eat as a hamburger or steak later. Absolutely. So, <laughs> that's That seems like a win-win to me. Um, you mentioned that you're a fifth-generation resident of Apache County. So tell me a little bit about your roots and how your ancestors got here. So I am, and I'm really proud of being a fifth generation um, resident, but I'm also a fifth generation cattle rancher. So my fifth great grandfather um, came from Utah. Um, he, he came in, uh, he planted the first wheat fields um, went back to Utah to grab, gather up his family, right, and come back down and, and um, made a huge, huge sacrifice. I can look out this window that you and I are sitting at right here in my kitchen, and I can, you won't recognize it, but I can see the very first well that was dug in this valley by my great, by my great grandfather's. Is it still functional? It is. Amazing. And 26 Bar gets to benefit from that. So <laughs> lucky, anyway, lucky. It's, it's okay. Um, <laughs> So my ancestors um, hand dug the ditches and the irrigation system that we still use today. Mm -hmm. um, that's a huge thing to me. In fact, um, it's a huge motivation, my own personal motivation, about what we're doing with the meat processing plant and this food system. Um, I woke up and I said, um, hey, wait a minute, I have, these, I have these forebears, these ancestors, who sacrificed so much and and gave so much, and we've used their contributions for 150 years. I haven't done much to, to build back that. I, what legacy am I leaving? Um, what am I gonna What am I gonna do that makes things better for my grandkids and my great grandkids? Um, I don't necessarily mean easier. And I know everybody will go what, but I want to mm -hmm. 
oh, yes, I want to leave them better. I want that infrastructure. So they learn to use that. Mm-hmm. They learn to have that same appreciation. I want, I want them to be something in this community that is valuable to everybody. Um, I also think I was just extremely fortunate to grow up <clears throat> farming and ranching and, and, um, we clearly raised our own food. We kind of had to. No. Did I like hoeing in the garden? No, I didn't. Did I like feeding the pigs? Mm, not Did you so have much. to pick the potato bugs off the potato plants? Yes. Plant? Yes. You know, and then, oh, yes. So if I wanted to earn any money for the summer, and I'm talking seven, eight years old, I was out there weeding. And I, yes, at the time, I thought it was just child abuse. It wasn't. It, it was so good for me, right? Um, but those kinds of things help me to really understand and love the land, right? Love the smell of soil. Love. You, you can't turn me loose in a patch of peas in the garden because I will eat every single <laughs> one of them standing right there, right there, right. right? There's nothing like a carrot or a radish that you just pull out of the ground. Mm-hmm. There's just not. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that I had that experience of and learned to appreciate that. I recognize there's just so many people um, here in the U.S. especially that don't have that experience, and they need it. They right. do. It's There's something so grounding about that. Um, I choose to live here uh, where I was born and raised because of that. I want to feel connected um, to the land. I want to feel connected to that particular lifestyle. I want to feel connected to my part in that food system um, and my community. And so what I do right now helps me to do that. And that's huge to me. That's awesome. I was speaking with one of the producers of this podcast, actually, um, I believe was the actually vice president and his wife quit her job as an accountant in Phoenix to go work at an organic farm. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, as you were mentioning, there's not a lot of people that have those same experiences. I'm hopeful that if anything comes out of a pandemic of, of just what we've been through the last couple of years, more and more of those people are, are reaching out and doing that. Certainly, I, I know we've seen those reports, too, from um, different news stations and everybody, when we were completely shut down, went out and tried to grow their own garden and start plants. And then I think so many people realize like, oh yeah, that's, this takes a lot more work and knowledge. It's not just throwing some seeds and some dirt and <laughs> voila, you've got a salad next week. Right. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and again, I think the most important thing to that is yes, fail a couple of times. Realize those seeds don't just magically pop up and in a week you've got what you want. There's nothing wrong with learning that and experiencing that, right? There's nothing wrong with understanding where eggs really come from and how those actually get laid, right? Because you got to think about it a minute and then go, okay, yeah, all right, I got it. It's going to take six or seven months for my for my chick to be a hen and start yes, laying. Yes, it's a long time I'm, to wait for your omelet. It is. It is right. <laughs> um, so I think all of those things are are good, and I think they go back to your point in that how do we how do we make this a viable, uh, sustainable uh, business in order for ranchers and, and livestock producers, farmers, uh, to make this work for them and their families, but also to make it work for consumers? We really are used to buying cheap things. Mm-hmm. That's We seem to enjoy them. 
Um, yeah, I do believe it's time to think about quality things. I also think it's time to think about all of that that's tied back to our health, what we're eating, what we're putting into our bodies. Oh, don't get me wrong. I got some things I love that, uh, you know, I probably shouldn't be dipping into quite as often as I do. So I'm not saying that, but I think knowing where that comes from, uh, knowing that somebody else has grown or produced that with care and concern and, and love. I'm, I don't know if people understand that about producers. Um, I don't know if they understand that, um, yeah, I don't necessarily like harvesting my cows all the time, mm-hmm. um, but I really understand they're, they're serving their purpose, um, and I am I, I enjoy them, and I am kind and compassionate and, I think, a fairly good caregiver, right? up until that time, but I understand what their purpose is as well as what mine is. And that makes for a quality product that is worth paying for, especially a little extra, right? right? I I think what you touched on, this consciousness about what we're eating is so important. And I, I had the opportunity a couple years ago, and we were in Virginia, and at the zoo, and a, a young lady called me on the phone, and she wanted to know where our animals came from and how many of them were from the wild. And I said, oh, well, none of our animals are from the wild. They're all in human care. They, they've been in human care for several generations. Um, and so she was okay with that. And later on, I was walking through the zoo, and I heard, I recognized her voice from the call. And I kind of paused and I wanted to make myself available because I suspected she was there being fairly with a critical eye, right? So I happened to be at the petting zoo and I was, I was petting one of my goats and she came up to me and she says, uh, you know, she comments on how nice they are and how everything here at our zoo looks well cared for. And she says, don't you think all farm animals should have that care? And I said, I absolutely agree, a hundred percent. And they, and I will tell you, they do in most cases. And she kind of stand, stood back and looked at me, and she said, "Well, uh, ranchers are just in it for the money and the 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 government subsidies." And I said, "Oh, wow! I am so glad that you brought this up. My husband is a third generation rancher. He's right over there on that bench." And uh, I said, "Just so you know, there there are no government subsidies for ranching. We're we're all." on our own and these animals are uh, cared for before we eat breakfast and on Christmas and Easter and anytime you know they need care we're there for them and I said uh, I talked to her about 4-H and how my kids were lucky to do 4-H and my daughter actually raised rabbits as a project they were meat rabbits and uh, we processed them at our house and we ate them and and she kind of her eyes were getting big and i said you have to understand 30 years ago 40 years ago probably um we recognized that there was this humility in raising your own food and giving it an honorable respectable harvest and and that that animal you know its purpose was to to nourish us and and there was humility and honor in that and and that you know we've kind of gotten away from that and she was very agreeable to that she was very open minded and but then she said well don't you think 
everybody should raise their own food. And I said, I would love for that to be a possibility, but we're in suburban Virginia at this point. And I said, look around, like there's no room for cattle to graze here. And no one in an apartment's going to raise chickens or, you know, have much more than a couple pots of tomatoes. So I, I think where she was coming from was such a great place, but clearly uh, whatever she had thought she knew um, was so myopic and, and what she thought, where she thought her own food came from, wherever that was also, um, you know, very narrow uh, scope. I also believe that um, to piggyback off of that, when you don't, when, when you are that myopic and you don't really have an understanding of the larger workings of this system, um, that that tends um, to cheapen what what you're consuming, right? So it's really easy to go through a drive-through and grab a burger and never contemplate where any of that came from. Um, it's really easy to go into the grocery store, pick some stuff off the shelf, um, go home and eat it, and and never think twice about not only the animal that produced it or the farmer that grew it, or the rancher that did that, um, but about what, you, what you've just done to contribute to this system of misunderstanding, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I think that education piece is absolutely huge. We don't do enough of that. We don't talk enough about that. I think that we pick some topics to be divisive about, and then we stick to that um, and instead of spending that time to visit. I also think that's a growing divide um, for uh, America. I do. Rural places um, and, and urban metropolitan places seem to be at odds right now, and they don't need to be. Right. We have way too much in common. None of us are going to quit eating. We are not going to. We know this, right? So that's the one thing we could agree on. We could agree on, okay, we're all going to want and need food. Let's figure out how to do that and do it responsibly, produce the healthiest um, uh, product we can. But let's make sure everybody can make a living off of that, right? Because uh, that can get to be a really burdensome. I think the the other point there is that these family farms and ranches have been for generations, not all of them, but lots of them for generations. And there's nothing more tragic than to recognize that um, the highest suicide rate in the U.S. is among farmers and ranchers, mm -hmm. because that responsibility to continue the family farm is so great, mm -hmm. but financially not possible. And, and it's really devastating to farmers and ranchers. And so that suicide rate is completely unacceptable, and it's tragic. And we have to do something about that as well. We have to let them know we appreciate them. Right. Yeah, that would go a long ways. Yes. Sir, when thank a farmer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Made an effort to meet one. So let's come back around and, and finish up with the, the meat processing plant. So you, you've talked about, you know, what you were able to, to, to get, to get it going. What are some of the, you know, we're, we're in the home stretch here. So what are some of the... Um, you know, the last hurdles and, and you know, what are, what's on your plate before we open? 
So we're like the rest of the country. We're just hoping that there's not another major fail in the supply chain, right? Because we have equipment still coming and we have um, product that we'll need, right? We'll have things um, that we'll need to be to be able to paper and, and tape and some just basic things like that, right? Some, to some plastic to make sure we can vacuum pack that and seal that. And we're going to want to make sure that comes in on a truck somewhere, right? right. That's important to us. So so there's those things. Um we have the last steps of our um, uh, food safety plan with the Food Safety and Inspection Service. Um, we have a few other things uh, in terms of educating the local ranchers about the services that we'll offer. Have some relationships to build there. We still have some staff to hire. We still have a few positions there. I think we also need to be thinking a little bit beyond that as well. And there are some great opportunities for um, some value-added businesses associated with the processing plant. And so we'd love for entrepreneurs and ambitious people to go, oh, hey, wait a minute, I could do this. You know, I could do dog chews or I could do pet food or I could do, um, I could do bone meal, some kind mm-hmm. of soil enhancer. There's a million things I would do because our goal would be to be a zero waste facility, right? We'd love to see all of that used and utilized. We're not necessarily um, desired to do all of that. We'd love to encourage some businesses and some entrepreneurs and business owners in that as well. I also think that we have, again, just some educating and educating of consumers as well. They need to understand they're going to get a product that is so much better than what you might get out of the grocery store. Um, and, and I would challenge anybody to say, hey, have you tried real meat? Right. Right? <laughs> right? Not something that's aged because they injected it with saline the minute mm-hmm. it was it was slaughtered, right? But real meat, right. something, yeah. And, you know, even people that are connected to to ranchers and people that are, that are producers have to try real meat because I a funny story, I... My sister-in-law came to me after she had some of our meat, which we finished on alfalfa and then had processed. And she said, I can't believe how good this tastes. Because normally they get the old cow. You know, as ranchers, we don't eat the best of our animals. We get the old cow that stopped calving and we had it ground into hamburger and maybe some tenderized round steaks. So I, I feel for you for that challenge because it's not just people that, that aren't producers, but it's probably some of those people that that ate old Bessie when she was serving her purpose. I, I know that's how I grew up. I didn't I didn't realize <laughs> that there was, yes, a, a tenderer, more quality meat. But my mom was good with it, right? She, yes. she learned how to cook it, and I didn't notice. I'll put it to you that way. Whatever was on my plate, I ate. So. Absolutely. So I know last time we spoke too about this project, one of the challenges that you were thinking you were going to have was having those uh, producers hang on to those five and six weight calves so that you had more closer to a 9,000 weight animal. Did Do you have a sense of how that's going? And um, is that something that you're still trying to educate on? We are still educating on, and we have some producers who are, that concept is like, okay, all right, got to figure out how to do that. We have some, and most of them are older ranchers, actually, and they're like, wow, I'm not sure that that 
is is um, feasible for me, financially feasible. Mm-hmm. So we're doing, again, some educating on that. Um, I think we've also had some discussions with and would love to discuss further some broader options. Um, we'd love to have a talk with the Forest Service and BLM and state and say, hey, can these guys leave these these cattle on a little longer? We're mm-hmm. not interested in overgrazing, but could we do that? Um, hey, there's allotments that are open and they're not filled. Can we can we get a couple of those allotments for people who want to put you know rate, get those beef a little bit bigger so that they're ready for slaughter? So we're trying to look at some of those answers, but that that does change the way the at least the ranchers in this area have done business for a while. Mm-hmm. So I think we'll get them on board, but it may only be a few beef at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but yes, we're still going to have that. So. Um, while we're not interested in the large feed mo- feedlot model, oh, we would really encourage somebody if they if they want to you know feed up twenty five cows, that'd be perfect, right? right? Or whatever that is. But just kind of thinking a little differently. Right. How many head are you guys planning on processing a day? So we're going to start with one crew, and we'll be able to process um, with that one crew um, six to seven a day. Um, it wouldn't take, uh, we'd need two more employees to beef that up to about 15. We're not sure we're going to start at 15 because, you know, we're, but, but that's generally what the capacity of the plant could do Mm -hmm. is 15 a day. Um, and if we were to work Saturdays and Saturdays and Sundays, we could increase that. Part of that is what USDA says they'll send us an inspector for. Okay. So we'll always be at the mercy of the Food Safety and Inspection Service and um, what that inspector um, works and is willing to work. Awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough for what you've been doing for the community and for producers. And uh, Jacob and I are so excited about this facility. Uh, We did move most of our cattle down south. But we are trying to time it so we have some soggy ones uh, come opening. So, uh, and that you've you've also done a great job developing these markets. So you have markets all ready to go once this gets open. We do, and we're excited about that. Um, but it's it's people like you and Jacob, right, who are who want to participate and want to be a part of that that really make it possible. And without that, without people wanting to look at something new, do it a little different, we'd fail. So it's a huge community team effort. It has to be. Um, We have to depend on each other and we have to talk to each other. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I am so grateful for this time. I feel like I could conversate with you all day long. I know you have other things to run off to do today. And I can't, again, I can't think of a better person or a better project to have as our inaugural podcast. So thank you so much, Carolee. I feel so privileged. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Desert Ranch Podcast. We hope we gave you a good look into the lives of those that care for land and livestock far past the 9-to-5 lifestyle. Until we talk again, have a fantastic week. Horses mark forgotten trails where dreams were shaped.